This morning, we'll talk about grief. This morning concludes our spring series on Can We Talk About? Today's topic about grief comes at a tender time in our church family. Several weeks ago, there came across my desk an article when there was a, another campus shooting at Michigan State University. It came from Dr. Kevin DeYoung, who's a Presbyterian pastor in North Carolina, who's an excellent writer and excellent thinker. He'd been a pastor in Lansing, Michigan, and just the title alone caught my attention as I thought about grief. The title of his article was called More Than Thoughts and Candles. It was subtitled to this, In Tragedy, Believers Really Do Know What the World Needs to Know, The Light of the World. Followers of Christ handled grief differently because we know about Jesus. This message will come, obviously, from a Christian perspective. But it's filtered with this thought right up front. In Psalm 23, a very famous song, psalm, we know the Bible says this, I am with you in the valleys, I'm with you in the shadows, and I'm with you in death. No matter where you go, I'm with you. Next week, we'll celebrate Pentecost, the reality that the Spirit of Jesus is in us. C.S. Lewis, in a letter to Malcolm, said this, The pure light walks the earth. Darkness received into the heart of deity is forever swallowed up. Where except in uncreated light can darkness be drowned? Answer, nowhere else. Nowhere else. The Bible gives us two books about grief and psalms about grief. The book of Lamentations and the book of Job are the bookends of grief and sorrows. So where are we going to go in this message? First of all, we want to understand that God is in tears. Jesus is the man of sorrows. Psalm 53 says our Lord was a man of sorrows. He would come. But it wasn't just in the text that we'll look at in John chapter 11, but we know about Jesus' great grief when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew 26, 38 tells us this, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And even on the cross, and you'll hear it in communion, Jesus asks the question, why? Each communion service, we say this, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in grief, we may not get our answer for the question why. Psalm 23 is this reminder that he is with us. He is with us. That happens in Psalm 23, verse 4, right in the middle of the psalm. And Jesus is with us in the valleys. You'll hear the testimony of a man who went through a deep valley. He's with us in the shadow. Oftentimes when people are grieving and there's a funeral, the family will be right here, right up front here. And funeral directors often are aware of, of water. They should drink water. Sometimes they'll sit on a stool. But those who grieve also think, they feel like their thinking is in jello. They're thinking through jello. They're, they're, they're in a fog. Is Jesus with us in the valley of the shadows? He sure is. He promised he would be. And he's certainly with us in death. 
We'll look at John chapter 11, a, a long passage of scripture. We'll, we'll read most of it. But as we read John chapter 11, keep this in mind that the whole theme of the gospel of John is found in John 1.14. The word became flesh and lived amongst us. That's the whole theme of John. He's trying to communicate that. And so in this passage of scripture that we'll take a look at, you see God in the flesh crying. God cries. He's not immune to our pain. Secondly, we'll understand these words that people remember hurtful words and they remember helpful actions. In the midst of grief and mourning, they remember hurtful words and helpful actions. This message will be about equipping. All of us will know people who grieve. You may find yourself writing down a thought and you may th find yourself writing down the name of someone who is going through grief. This will be an equipping message. And finally, understand this, that every grief journey is different. This was so helpful to me this week as I listened to people who have grieved, who are mourning, who work with our Grief Share ministry. There is no timetable. There is no formula for grief. There is no timetable. There is no formula for grief. Everyone's journey is different. Everyone's journey is different. So receive these words of encouragement from a Baptist minister 125 years ago. England's greatest preacher, Charles Spurgeon, said this in March of 1875 in a sermon entitled, Man of Sorrows. Oh, beloved ones, understand for as great as the woes of our Redeemer, they are all over now. They are to be looked upon with sacred triumph. However severe the struggle Christ went through, the victory has been won. Our Savior is no longer in Gethsemane agonizing or upon the cross expiring. The crown of thorns has been replaced by a crown of sovereignty. The nails and the spear have been given away to the holy scepter of which rules. Nor is this all, for all through the suffering is ended, the blessed results never end. We may remember the tra travail for the God-man who is a child entered the world, and this God-man wept. The sowing in tears is followed by reaping in joy. The bruising of the heel of the woman's seed is well recompensed by the breaking of the serpent's head. It is pleasant to hear of battles fought when a decisive victory has ended war and established peace. So that the double reflection that all the work of suffering is finished by the Redeemer and henceforth Christ himself beholds the success of all his labors. We shall rejoice. We shall rejoice, Spurgeon said, even while we enter into fellowship with the suffering. Emmanuel is with us. He has no intention to ever leave us alone. Good word, good reminder. Let me invite you to uh, find a passage or a uh, copy of the scriptures of John chapter 11. If you have your own copy, we're going to take a look at that. It's on page 923. And we're going to do something a little different as we look at the scriptures. I'm going to flip the script, f flip the approach kind of upside down. Usually we read the passage of scripture and then we explain what it means. But first I want you to look for something. 
look for clues, look for interactions, and then we'll read it. I'm doing that intentionally. And the reason why I want to do that is John chapter 11 talks about Jesus. It's the account of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And the reason I want to do that is because I think that there are some rings or ripple effects that I want you to look for. I want you to look for, first of all, I want you to look for the political struggle that went, that went on in this passage of Scripture. They say when families get together, you shouldn't talk about two things. What are they? Religion and politics, right? But politics is all involved with this as well, too. How so, you may ask? You'll find in verse 48 that the priests and, the, and the, that year's high priest, Caiaphas, they were concerned about this resurrection miracle. And they say so. They fear that the messianic movement of a Jewish carpenter would erupt and bring a crushing arm of Rome and put an end to the last remnants of Israel's national and political existence. It existed then, is it, 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 it exists now. A political struggle. Caiaphas' house would become a house of conspiracy and of lies and of strong men, straw men, looking to accuse our Lord and Savior. Look for that. It's right there. The, the second ring I want you to look for when we read the passage of Scripture <clears throat> is one of social interactions, different levels. I found five. You might find more, but look for them. The first one you'll find are Jewish friends found in verse 37 and verse 36 and 37. After Jesus weeps, the friends split in two camps. Some friends say, see how much he loved Lazarus. And the other friends are split. And they say, well, if he could heal the sick, why wasn't he here? Why didn't he keep him from not dying? That's one. Second one is this. You find Jesus' disciples curious, confused, on why in the world would you ever want to go back to Bethany. In verse 8 and verse 16, you find them saying they wanted to kill you there. They wanted to arrest you there. Why are we going back? They're split. And, and Thomas, known as Didymus, states what maybe all they're thinking. Let's go to Bethany and we'll die with them. You see these, this ring, this social ring. And then, of course, there are the sisters, the sweet sisters. In verse 21 and 32, Martha and Mary. Here they come weeping. And you might think their comment, they both say the same thing. You might think it's a little snarky, but it's not a rebuke. They're lamenting. They're grieving. They believe that he is the Messiah, that he will bring the resurrection in the end. But Jesus is going to do something far more than they could ever imagine. Mary is the same one who wipes Jesus' feet as an act of worship and will do again that same thing again in the next chapter, John 12. So we see that interaction. I want you to feel that. The third one that we, or the fourth one that we see is Lazarus himself. This social relational aspect, we understand Jesus' relationship with him because verse 3 says that Jesus loved him. When you love someone, you don't want to see them suffer, right? You don't want to see them suffer. So Jesus was heartbroken. He was, it was personal to the Lord. Lazarus wasn't just a number. He wasn't just a face in the crowd. He was his friend. 
So you have that relationship. And then finally this, one that you might just uh, not catch right away, but in verse 5 and verse 6 and then verse 18, you the reader are drawn in. How so? Because John records this that Jesus deliberately stayed away. (laughs) You may go, wait a second. That doesn't sound like the king to me. That doesn't sound like the Savior. And then it goes on to say that Bethany was only two miles away. So it wasn't the distance. Why would Jesus do that? In that day, there was no embalming. They washed and they prepped with herbs and spices. But then it gets not just personal, but we see the God-man. Look at his emotions. Watch and come next to him. He wept. God in tears is not untouched. Remember, the central theme for the the book of John is what? The word became flesh. And in this passage of scripture, we see Jesus weeping. A book that I would just greatly encourage you to read is a book by Colin Smith. It's printed in your bulletin. He makes this comment about this, this event. He said, never make the mistake of thinking that weeping means you're failing to believe adequately the resurrection. Jesus had tears rolling down his face over the death of his dearly loved friend. He wept over death, even though he knew for Lazarus, resurrection was only moments away. Wow. Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed in verse 41. Do you know he still does that? Three different authors tell us this in the New Testament. The book of Romans 8.34 tells us that Jesus is at the right hand of God and he's interceding for us now. What's Jesus doing? He's interceding for us now. The book John writes in 1 John 2.1 that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus. And the writer for the book of Hebrews says that Jesus always lives to intercede for them. Why did Jesus not move quicker? What was Jesus thinking? He gives you a clue in verse 4 and then verse 40. He says, this will, God will be glorified. God will be doxologized. That's what the word doxology means. This will bring God glory as the resurrection for life. But maybe the most powerful thing that you'll see as we read this account in just a minute, is you'll see that Jesus was greatly moved and troubled in his spirit. He was greatly moved and troubled in his spirit. That word is a very interesting word. It originally means to snort like a horse, as a horse does. To the passing to the moral sense, it expresses disturbance of the mind, vehement agitation. This intensity of emotion always has an object. This compelling, this agitation. What was Jesus angry at? He was angry at our final enemy, death. And so as John Calvin writes, these are the words of a champion. He calls out, as God said, let there be light. He says very clearly, Lazarus, come forth. So let's read John chapter 11. With all those clues, 
Look for the rings of power of politics. Feel the ripple dynamics of social and relational interactions. Ponder the personal God in the flesh and shudder with awesome holiness that our God commands even the ones who are dead to rise again. He is the resurrection and the life. Reading in Jesus' name on page 923. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany the village of Mary and his sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it's for God's glory, so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciple, let's go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews were trying to stone you, and yet you're going back? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they will see this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have their light. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. Well, the disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking about his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from J Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Martha stayed home. Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but I know that even now God will give you what you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe you are the Messiah the Son of God who has come into the world. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he have not opened the eyes of the blind and kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. 
It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he's been there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe you'll see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you will always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out. His hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. And one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up and you said, you know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for that one man to die for the people than the whole nation to perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, <clears throat> he prophesied Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. That's the story of our Lord. That's the story of our Lord. I mentioned this book. This is a fantastic book. It was so helpful in preparing me for this message. For All Who Grieve, Navigating the Valley of Sorrow and Loss by Colin Smith. He makes this comment. I thought this was so good. Let this encourage your soul. A great gulf is fixed between this world and the next and you cannot talk to your loved one who's died, but you can talk to your loved one. You can talk about your loved one to the Savior. Let me repeat that. A great gulf is fixed between this world and the next, and you cannot talk to your loved one who has died, but you can talk about your loved one to the Savior. You can tell the Lord how much you miss him. You can tell the Lord how much you love her. And if your loved one was in Christ... If your loved one is in Christ, you can do this knowing that she or he is very close to the one whom you are speaking. Wow. That encouraged my soul. Second thing I want to share with you this morning is just this thought that I had that went on all this week. People remember hurtful words and helpful actions. When you study grief, and our friends from Grief Share do a great job, they just started a new class. I want to invite you, if this is a tender time for you, they meet on Tuesdays at 9 a.m. in room 305. They just started. You can jump in. But people remember hurtful words, and they remember helpful actions. <clears throat> grief is deep sorrow as a response to loss, especially a loss caused by someone's death. Grief is inward and mourning is the outward expression. The Bible tells us in Romans 12, 15, we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Grief is often thought as a physical, as an emotional response, but there's also all kinds of other aspects that happen with grief. Think about it for just a minute. 
this was really helpful as I thought about why people think in a fog or, or what. There's a physical aspect when someone is not with you anymore. There's no hellos or someone at home to greet you. You're often alone. There's a mental aspect. We talked about this, thinking through jello, you almost feel like in a fog. There's a routine aspect. I had a friend of mine who said, my husband took out the garbage for all the years we were married, taking care of the cars or the finances or yard work. There's the behavioral aspect. We always did this together. There's in many cases an intimacy aspect that's forever gone. There's relational and social cultural aspects. You used to play off one another's strengths and you're single, not, not a couple anymore. There's future goal aspects, like not sharing grandparenting joys or travel or dream aspects. There's certainly a financial aspect, forms, documents. It's common to be stuck in grief. But I want you to remember these words. People remember hurtful words and they remember helpful actions. Be careful what you say. So in the next three slides, I put together what, it's not exhaustive, but I put together some things that through a, in a ministry lens, this is the equipping part of what not to say. Think about this in terms of someone who has a sunburn and you want to give them a hug. You want to give them a hug they're sunburned. You know what I'm saying, right? So these three are kind of bundled together. I bundle them all together, and I'll just read them. What not to say. Be careful when you quote Romans 8:28. God works all things to the good. Be careful if you would say, this is God's plan. Be careful. That statement might come, but it might be years, years, years down the way. Be careful when you say God won't give you anything you can't handle. By the way, that's not in the Bible. That's just a Hallmark card. That's stupid. God has another angel in heaven or heaven needed another good person. Why didn't he make another angel then? We don't turn into angels. They're in heaven so you don't have to be sad. I am sad. I want them here. The next bundle is what not to say are time-related. Time will heal it, not necessarily. C.S. Lewis talks about the difference between having an appendix, appendix taken out and losing a limb. You'll always have phantom pains. Your nerves are raw. Be careful about saying, I'm thankful you had time to get prepared. You're never prepared. You're never prepared. You're trying to live and enjoy the time together in your grief. This one's personal to me. Call me if you need something. We'll be in touch. A good friend of mine who I hunt with lost his dad when he was just a little boy. He said, Kirk, people would say to me at the funeral, I'll take you hunting, I'll take you fishing, I'll tell you how to tie a tie, change a flat. He said, nobody did. If you say that, put that in your calendar. And finally, these are just kind of a conglomeration of things, things not to say, just to be careful and cautious. You're too young to be alone. 
Just being with another person might even seem repulsive. You had so many years together. You, can, you have other children. I understand what you're going through, which, quite honestly, no, I don't. No, you don't. The question why may never be answered this side of glory. Our Lord said, Lord, why have you forsaken me? That's God in the flesh. Jesus said, I have overcome the world. We don't have a real big uh, network of churches that Bethesda is a part of. We're part of something called the Church of Lutheran Brethren. And we had a tender funeral this past Tuesday of this super neat man. His name is Pastor Mark Tunkseth. You would like him. He had a twinkle in his eye. He would have, always would smile with a big grin. He had a laugh that was contagious. And he had a voice that was incredible. And he was a good athlete. I mean, he had the whole package. He battled with uh, leukemia for two years, and he passed away, and his funeral was on Tuesday. And the funeral was streamed online, so I got to see most of it. His youngest son, he and his wife Kathy, had uh, four kids. His youngest son shared this story publicly, which I want to pass on to you. His son Chris told his story at his funeral on Tuesday. He said, a couple weeks ago, I had a conversation with my dad. I asked dad, how can we know that there's life after death? How can we know for sure that heaven is real? He said to the audience that gathered on Tuesday, he said, I'm not doubting my faith, but these are questions that I had. And I asked my dad. And then he said, my dad said this, with his body failing, yet with a voice strong in confidence, he said, yes, Chris, there is a great unknown in death. But there is someone greater who knows. He knows death. He defeated death. He bridged the gap between death and life so we can rejoice, even in the great unknown in death. Wow. There's no timetable for grieving. There's no formula for grieving. The book of Lamentations repeats again five chapters in the book of Lamentation, repeat these themes again and again. There's flashbacks in the book of Lamentations 3.20. My soul continually remembers. There's graphic details in the book of Lamentations. But in the first book of the Bible, in the, what scholars consider the first New Testament book in the Bible, 1 Thessalonians, this powerful verse is given. And the reason why those words are circled and drawn together is to focus on the contrast. Listen, 1 Thessalonians says this, Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who fall asleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. Listen, these words are often misunderstood by Christians who take it to mean believers should not grieve because we have hope. But the contrast is this. Paul is making not between grief and hope as these are alternatives, but between believers who have hope when we grieve and unbelievers who don't. Do you see the contrast? Said another way, Paul is not saying that if you have hope, you will not grieve. He's saying that when you grieve, you have hope because you will be united with believing ones 
when Christ comes again. So Pastor Kirk, you told me of things not to say. What should I say? Had this happen in my neighborhood. Neighbor asked me, what do I say? I said, listen well. Listen well. It's certainly okay to say I love you. It's certainly okay to say I'm so, so sorry. It's certainly okay to say I'm praying for you. And pray for them shortly by saying something like this. Oh, Lord Jesus, hold my friend near. Say the person's name. Luis was such a blessing to me. Say their name. Makes them feel bad? No, they want their, name, they want their loved one to be remembered. And then be aware of this, that the first weeks of grief are like intensive care care. Intensive care care. Meals come over. All the, all the attention. But put it in your phone. Six months. Three months. A year. Bring coffee over to them. It is super scary when people who grieve. Someone says, call me if you need something. That's really hard to pick up the phone. Mow the lawn, shovel the snow. Invite for supper. And don't avoid. Here are some practical things to do. First of all, if this is hitting you, you've been someone who's lost a loved one or gone through grief, I want to give you two things. I think that will encourage you. One, we understand this, that the word of God, Jesus, speaks to us in the word of God, the Bible. It's your lifeline. So here are two psalms. They're called penitential psalms, or song, excuse me, they're called songs of lament, Psalm 13 and Psalm 40. Personalize them. When you see the word I or you, just write in your Bible your name. That struck me this week. I thought, Kirk, duh. Hadn't thought of that before. I do that for 1 John 5.13 all the time. And secondly, this book is, is it, it's fantastic. It'll walk you through the book of Lamentations, the grief book. This book is called For All Who Grieve. You can get it on Amazon or wherever you buy your Bibles or buy your books by Colin F. Smith. He's a pastor outside Chicago. I think it'll encourage your soul. And finally, for those of us who want to join Jesus on your mission, just a simple, just a simple um, reminders. We're called to do good. Who in your life is grieving? How can you show the love of God? And then uh, I mentioned about Grief Share. That starts on Tuesday. You can certainly do that. But this is something to put in your phones, put in your calendar. Save the date. It's a save the date. It's called Surviving the Holidays. It's November 14th, 9 to 11. You can just come to one. But this is super important. Listen, not only put it in your phones, but then come with a friend. Don't just tell someone that you know. Say, I'll go with you. Take the day off if you have to and come with someone. It is fantastic. Let's bow forward a prayer as we prepare our hearts. Lord Jesus, thank you.
Thank you that you do not leave us alone. Thank you that you said that you are with us in the valleys, in the valley of the shadows, and you are with us in the valleys of the shadow of death. You don't leave us alone. We read the account, and we saw it so clearly. All the ripple effects, all the dynamics that happened when you cried. And we thank you for that. This meal that we share, someday you will be the host. You will be the officiant. You, as our great king, will present us a meal, the Lamb's Feast. Until then, as we take this meal, we pray that you would strengthen and renew our faith. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.